The Tom Woods Show, episode 1324. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you're like me, one of the most demoralizing things is when someone utters the truth and then lamely apologizes. Well, not these folks. I've got a free ebook of stories from heroic professors who told the PC mob to go pound sand. Stories from Jordan Peterson, Michael Rechtenwald, and others. Check it out at againstthemob.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Not too long ago, I was a guest on The Tatiana Show, hosted by the great Liberty musician Tatiana Moroz, and we talked about a wide variety of things. She more or less asked me a lot of just general questions that an interested, curious newbie might want to ask. Now, Tatiana herself is not a newbie, but some folks in her audience are. So she asked me the kinds of questions that she thought they might be inclined to ask. And, you know, I I find that some of these questions are hard to answer in just a quick podcast-style format, but I did the best I could, and I hope you enjoy the result. So you can follow Tatiana at her website, tatianamoroz.com. That's Tatiana, T-A-T-I-A-N-A, and then M-O-R-O-Z.com. And of course, you can find the Tatiana Show on all your podcasting platforms. Here we go. Thanks so much for coming on the show again, Tom. I'm glad to be back, and we're always, always thrilled to have you aboard uh, the Contra Cruise. It's, it's, we've just, every year, it's been a blast. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to go, I think, every year so far. Um, before we get down with the with the history, I do want to tell people about it because we're going to be going to Alaska this year, right? Oh, it's going to be great. I've never, have you ever been to Alaska? No, but I've heard it's quite incredible. I'm a little yeah, concerned so, uh, about being cold, though. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I will manage. But on the other hand, the places we've gone to up to now, it's like 110 degrees and then the excursions on shore, things like a five hour walking tour. I would be dead after 40 minutes. What are you talking about? So I think I wouldn't actually mind the, uh, you know, a little coolness, but I've never been either. Bob hasn't been our our co-host on the cruise and we just think it's going to be a lot of fun. And it's the kind of place that's on people's bucket list. I'm going to get to Alaska sometime between now and my death. And so now's as good as, as good a time as any, because you're going to be with some of the best people in the world having a blast. I agree. I think it's going to be really neat. And plus, we're well, going to be in the middle of summer, so people are going to be a little bit sick of the heat by that point, too, I think. And really, it's the only, there's a very small window for Alaska cruises. It's just those few summer months. So we are grabbing that in July and going with it. So ContraCruise.com is the website. It is the libertarian event of the year with such amazing people. And Naomi Brockwell, whom, of course, you know, who is mm-hmm. also uh, pretty big in the crypto world, she actually said on my show these actual words, that it was the best event she's ever been to. Now, with no qualification, not the best event on C or the best libertarian, the best event she's ever been to. And I thought that is a nice endorsement because I know she has a much, much better social life than I have. And if even she says it's a good event, then it is. Well, I can assure people as well. It was really, really fun. And I liked having Naomi on. I've gotten to be closer friends with her since then. And it's cool. We have our own little New York uh, Contra Krugman cruise crew. That is great. Yeah. That, and people have like little mini reunions around the country with people aboard the cruise they meet who live nearby. It's nuts. So Bob and I, the first year we did it, we actually took a moment to talk to each other at one point and said, you know, 
I can't get over how great this thing is. This is better than any of the books we've written. This cruise is better than that. So great fun. Well, you know, I mean, if you've got a book and you've got, you know, a podcast, it's only one way to really interact. This is a great way to actually make friends and build up relationships. And I think that those will carry us through the, the dark times of our political climate. Indeed. And you can sail away from those. <laughs> you can leave your problems behind and sail out into international waters for a while. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Um, so do you know any of the other guests that are going to be on? Because you usually have some special guests. We do. Now, this year, a couple of them may not be as well-known to folks, but Naomi was not very well-known to folks. And at, by the end of the cruise, they thought, this she's like the best person I've ever met in my life, you know, multi-talented and extremely pleasant. Um, I wanted to have Brad Berzer, who's a professor of history at Hillsdale College, and his wife, they both teach there, because Brad, first of all, is just a wonderful person. Uh, you're just going to love him. He's very smart. But also, we have exactly the same musical tastes, which we foist on my unsuspecting and, frankly, undesiring uh, podcast audience from time to time. We do an episode on progressive rock, but he's very knowledgeable in a wide variety of areas, uh, it, it, all the way from history to things like science fiction, mythology. He can talk about almost anything. But then also Gene Epstein, who used to be with Barron's, which was like major, major financial publication, he now runs with Naomi a debating society in New York called the Soho Forum. And they do a debate on a real topic, not like a, not like the kind of debates we have in America between, you know, uh, should we bomb that country or just starve them to death? And that's the whole debate. You know, these are actual debates where there is an actual difference between the debaters. And, and uh, Gene is going to be on board with us. And Gene, I got to know back at a Freedom Fest, you know, the event in Las Vegas every year, back in, I think, 2010, because the two of us debated two other people on the Federal Reserve and whether we should get rid of it or not. And Gene and I, I think, did a pretty darn good job. So Gene is actually going to be moderating, given that he's a debate moderator now professionally with the Soho Forum, he's going to be moderating a debate on board the 2019 Contra Cruise. And that's a debate between Bob Murphy, the economist, and me. And we haven't yet revealed the topic, but it, it's a serious topic. It's not frivolous or silly. It's an area where Bob and I have a sharp disagreement. And it's, a, it's an area where I think Bob has a pretty controversial position. And we're going to do it in the Oxford style, which means you poll the audience before the debate, say, which side of this debate do you walk into this on? And then after they hear both of us, we ask them again, now that you've heard both sides, now what side are you on? And then we see who changes more minds and that person is declared the winner. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, I'm, I'm super excited about um, Gene because I've actually attended one of the Soho forums. I've only gotten to go to one of them, but it was a really beautiful event. Uh, they do them monthly here in New York. So I, I've wanted to become better at uh, debating. So I'm starting to you know, pay a little bit more attention to how that works. Not, not in a formal sense, but you know, when you have to argue with people and win them over, you've got to have a certain uh, level of comfort with that. And I think it could be a little bit scary. So it's been fun to, to observe that. Um, so I don't know. I'm going to give it a shot and keep keep trying. I don't know if I'm going to be in the solo forum myself, but it's fun to watch. And uh, now I'm titillated by this prospect of this unknown um, unknown topic. I know. And the thing is, I'm already trash-talking Bob on Twitter. Uh, just the other day, I was saying uh, one of the requirements this year to get on the Contra Cruise is every passenger has to agree to be willing 
to help carry Bob out on a stretcher after I'm done with him. Wow. Yeah, I know. This is going to be rough. <laughs> well, you guys were talking about doing a debate with, uh, I mean, you guys were egging, or what, what would you call it, catcalling <laughs> Ben Shapiro to debate uh, Scott Horton, who's been a frequent guest on the Tom Woods show. He was also on the Contra Krugman cruise. Did that go anywhere or what happened? As far as I know, Shapiro did not respond. The idea of that is that, of course, Shapiro has some appeal to some of our people on some issues. But then when it comes to foreign policy, he's just a disaster. He's just just every bit as much a part of the establishment as anybody else. And whereas Scott Horton is the anti-establishment uh, when it comes to foreign policy. He, and he is brilliant and, and encyclopedic in his knowledge. So we thought that would make for an interesting debate because, of course, part of the way Shapiro makes his uh, reputation is as somebody who can debate people, who can confront people on their errors. And what some people have been saying is, yeah, Ben will do that if the person is an 18-year-old um, college freshman who doesn't know any better and he can make mincemeat of that person. But you put him up against somebody who's really knowledgeable, who's really at his level, and he turns and runs the other way. Now, that's what people have said. I'm not accusing him of that. But and I know that he's got many, many, many Twitter followers, and it's quite possible that the the zillion tweets directed at him all went unseen. I'm not sure that's the case, but that's the most charitable interpretation I come up with. So so far nothing, but someday somebody is going to walk into the buzzsaw that is Scott Wharton, and we're all going to get to enjoy it. I love it. I am totally in full agreement because I I like Ben Shapiro because I like the way that he thinks, and I like you know, the points that he brings up, even if I don't agree with him. But yeah, when he gets into foreign policy, he goes really far off the rails. So I would love to see that kind of a debate. And Scott's a beast. I mean, he comes on the Tatiana show and my brain is exploding the entire time. So, uh, I I mean, I find it intimidating to try and listen to that stuff. Um, you know, what do you think about that? Like if there's people that are, that are new into this space, uh, into this philosophy, into libertarianism, what do you think is a good starting point? Because, you know, they hear all these different things and, and where, where do you think that they can get going? Okay, so in other words, we're in an environment in which people are, well, they're not constantly propagandized against us because we're not even mentioned. But by default, they're told that, of course, the natural order of things is that you sit there and obey, you know, we issue commands. We don't quite put it that way. We, we tell you that, of course, you can, why, you can vote. Ah, okay. But once we vote, then they tell us what to do. We sit back and take. Uh, so we do have to get people out of that. And so there are different ways that I approach that. Uh, one would be just to get them thinking. I start asking moral questions like, um, we all understand that there is no way you would let me walk up to somebody and say, I don't like this physical substance that you possess. It doesn't harm anybody else, but you can harm yourself with it. So if you persist in having it, I'm going to put you in this cage. Now, no, we'd think I was out of my mind, right? No one would, would say that I was authorized to do that. But if a person wearing a fancy uniform decides to go do it, and a bunch of other people put pieces of paper in a box indicating that they liked that guy, then suddenly it becomes all right for him to put this person in a cage. Now, why is that? Is that did we sprinkle magic dust on this other person? Why would that be? Why is there this radical inequality where this official person can do horrible things, but I rightly cannot? Or if I were to go up to your door and say, look, I'm, I'm soliciting for a charity and I think it's a really, really important charity. You're just going to love it. 
and you say, well, I, I have a lot of things that I care about, and, and this one I just don't care about enough. I'm going to pass. And then I basically said, well, I'm taking the money anyway. I'm going to, I'm going to go into your account, and I'm going to deduct 30%. You, again, they would haul me away. But if, a, if uh, uh, again, if somebody with a fancy uniform does it, and some people put pieces of paper in a box saying, well, we like this person, then everybody says, well, that's perfectly normal and okay. But it's, I mean, it's not in our daily lives. The point is we don't, we would never tolerate something like that. We wouldn't say if we all go out for dinner together and nine people vote that the 10th person should pay the bill, nobody thinks, well, I guess that's binding. You know, I mean, after all, we voted. So there's something weird about what we're being expected to believe, but yet it's drilled into us from the time we're very young to the point where we don't even realize that it's something to be questioned. So first I, I raised this issue of the state seems to be able to do things that no individual could do. And if no individual could do it, how does it become morally acceptable if a group of individuals decides to do it? Uh, I, I'm not sure I get that. The other thing I would do is to remind people of how much that's amazing and miraculous in the world occurs without anybody actually coercively directing it. That is to say, for example, the extreme case would be of, of the opposite of what I'm saying would be the Soviet Union, where they have a five-year plan or a you know, four-year plan, and they're going to they're gonna lay out exactly, um, you know, this is what we're going to produce this much of this, and these people are going to do this job, and this plant is going to be opened here, and everything's laid out by a committee. That would be one extreme. And a lot of times I think people think that must be probably the most efficient way, because Otherwise, what, we're just going to let people willy-nilly start businesses selling whatever they want, wherever they want, with however many employees? That just seems anarchical and crazy and inefficient. But it turns out that the opposite is true, that the most anarchical situation and the most inefficient is when a tiny committee thinks it can plan out something like an economy. And it turns out that actually what happens is when you don't have some guy with a bullhorn issuing the commands of the plan, what you do have are free individuals who make decisions based on whether they make profits or losses. If they make losses, that's society's way of saying either we have too much of what you're producing already, so you're wasting resources, or we don't like what you're producing, so again, you're wasting resources, go produce something else. If I make a profit, we're supposed to believe that's evil, but that's actually just people saying, all right, good, you have taken the scarce resources of this world and you've combined them in such a way that you've produced something that pleases us. So here, here are more resources to do more of that good thing that you're doing. And so this guides people into what is socially demanded and what isn't. And so that this all occurs on a daily basis without central direction. And so, for example, um, I, I might even mention the English language. There was no person who devised the English language, gathered everybody together, started grunting, then making words and pointing at pictures, and then that was English. It occurred spontaneously and without anybody in so-called in charge of it. The dictionary companies didn't make English. The dictionary companies took the existing English and then just codified all the definitions for us. Or uh, Bob Murphy likes the example of physics as an academic discipline. There's nobody in charge of physics. There's no president of physics. Physics is completely without central control. It is run, if you can even say that, by academics who have academic journals and they write journal articles and they critique each other and the good work rises to the top and the bad work is forgotten about. And 
the discipline of physics proceeds in that way without anybody with a bullhorn or anything. So in other words, so much of what's amazing about the world occurs as the, with the opposite of the bullhorn guy directing society model. And so just to, just to loosen people up to think about what's possible and what does and has happened without coercive central direction gets them willing to think that, well, maybe more and more of society could be run this way. Maybe I don't need John McCain, RIP, or Lindsey Graham, or Nancy Pelosi, for that matter, directing A, B, or C. Maybe there's some kind of principle within society itself that kind of uh, runs it. But who would build the roads? Uh, <laughs> you know, I have to say, um, when I get that question, I mean, there are answers to that. I mean, Walter Block has a book called The Privatization of, of uh, I think it's called Privatization of Roads and Highways. There are different ways to approach that. But what I often do in this kind of situation is say to people, how about this? I will concede the roads to you. Okay, you can have the roads. We'll coercively fund the roads if you're willing to listen to me on everything else. Okay, if you cannot come up with the imagination to figure out how we could crowdfund or how merchants associations would want to have roads, like if you have a road, if you have a, a neighborhood full of, of shops, but no road for people to uh, access, access them, th then you may as well not have built the shop. I and mean, people aren't going to be dumb. They're going to say, that's going to have to be part of doing business here. You've got to chip in for the road. Same thing with your neighborhood, got to chip in for the road. Uh, we have billboards, you have uh, toll devices. You can, there are many ways this can be handled. And in early America, we had private turnpike companies. There are many ways this can be done. And moreover, think about the roads you have now, okay? I defy you to find me a major place in the U.S. that at this very moment that you and I are speaking does not have orange cones on it somewhere on those roads. I defy you. You notice that the roads are never done. They're never ready. Now, okay, Manhattan's different, Tatiana. You have a different kind of experience. But I'm talking about in uh, just the highways or the just the ordinary roads that people travel on to get to work. There's always some portion of them that's being ripped up, put back in again, orange cones and hideous-looking barriers everywhere. Why, why is that the one product in the world that's never just done? Okay, finally, the roads are finished. There's something fishy about that. But secondly, if I go to, I don't know, buy flowers, I'm generally not waiting in line for three hours to get flowers. Or if I go to, well, almost, I mean, just think of almost anything. I go to UPS to ship a package. I'm not waiting in line for three hours. But when I'm trying to get to work, on a government-provided road in some of these cities, I'm sitting there for two hours. I'm sitting there for two hours unproductively, accomplishing nothing. So huge waste of human capital, not to mention frustration, gas, everything else. Why is that? Because at that point, the road has zero price. So people who are out for a stroll, or like, I just want to go visit you know, Aunt Zelda right now, are on the road. At the same time, people who urgently need to be at work are on the road. There's no way to ration it or figure out what makes economic sense. Whereas in a private situation, yeah, it'd be super cheap to be on the road at certain times of day. But other times, we have to make clear that only the people who urgently need to be here should be here. Instead of just taking everybody's money all at once, pouring it indiscriminately on the roads, and then having everybody rush out onto the road at the same time. This makes no sense, and it makes everybody crazy. Yeah, it sounds like it. But I mean, the roads is, okay, roads is easy. What about um, police or armed forces? Do you have a position there that, that would convince people that they could still be safe? I mean, how do you make sure that only the rich people aren't the ones that are guarded? 
Well, you could ask that question now, couldn't you? I mean, I mean, think about the current situation. Now, first of all, on stuff like this, I think it's hard to give quick, pithy answers. You'd almost need a whole episode on that. But, but just very quickly, you could say on a topic like that, that it's, it would be like thinking about education. Oh, what would happen uh, if the government didn't provide the education? The poor people wouldn't get any education. But, but what these kinds of objections so often overlook is the actual situation poor people are in today with the government solution. I wouldn't want to send anybody to these schools. They're like prisons. They're like dangerous too. They're, they're very dangerous. dangerous. They're not, nobody's getting, I mean, when you look at the, the, the results of these schools, it is appalling. They basically don't know anything, the student. They don't know anything about anything. If those schools were being provided by Walmart and generating results like that, we would never hear the end of the evils of capitalism. But when the government provides the schools and the results are that abysmal, it's, well, you know, I guess they need more money. They would never say that with Walmart. Walmart needs more money. Never. It's always Walmart must be evil, wants to keep the poor down. There's always some excuse. Notice how there's always some excuse for the government. Well, likewise, with uh, police protection, well, there are a lot of neighborhoods that feel like they're being more assaulted by the police than protected by them. There, there are neighborhoods where the, the it's just it's just hopeless. I, in fact, I remember that I was a grad student at Columbia, so I lived up uh, in, the, in the Morningside Heights area, and a friend came to visit me. And when we came out of the restaurant, his car had been broken into, and they had taken now this is the old day they'd taken his stereo system out of his car, and they took all his CDs and drove away. So we flagged down a policeman, knowing full well what was about to happen. But we thought, what the heck, right? We're taxpayers. Let's see what comes of this. And we said, look, we were just robbed. And the guy made off with, uh, with, with, with this stuff. And the guy, I'm not kidding you, the policeman said, that is a real shame. I'm really sorry to hear that. And he drove away. Because he knew and we knew there was absolutely nothing he could do. <laughs> it was impossible. Now, again, imagine if a private company were providing your security and they said, oh, something was stolen. Oh, well, that's a shame. You know, it's a tough city. And then just move. We would, there would be hearings. People would be on trial. We would never, ever hear the end. But there's this sense that the state just always deserves the benefit of the doubt. Well, you know, hey, it's a tough job. You would never say that if Walmart were doing it. It would always be evil Walmart doesn't want to protect people. So the long and the short of it is when you actually look at how much, I think it's probably two thirds of the security in America is actually privately provided. Uh, when you go to the mall, you walk around the mall, or you walk around Disney World, that those are little private havens where there's private security. D Disney World is privately policed. It's a huge, sprawling area. You do not walk around Disney World fearing for your life. You don't. There are parts of Manhattan. Now, these days, not as much. But in the old days, you'd walk around Manhattan. There were parts where you would fear for your life. But for some reason, at Disney World, you don't. And yet, at the same time, you don't see people with Uzis walking around at Disney World. I don't know how they're doing it. And I bet it's a, some kind of a trade secret. They're figuring it out, how to keep people safe. So again, now I can't, again, in just a few minutes, convince everybody of the whole full-fledged plan of how it would work. But I can at least make them think that there's something undesirable and suboptimal about the present situation, I hope, enough to get them flexible enough to think, well, maybe some radical surgery might be welcome. Well, you know, I thought one of the scariest things, because, you know, there's always the Second Amendment um, issue that comes up, but they just had a ruling where there was that sheriff, I think, in Broward County down in Florida, the one who didn't go in and help the children, that he was under no obligation to help the children while they were being shot at. 
I mean, I don't understand what's the point of a cop if he's not going to help kids that are getting slaughtered. I don't even know how he lives with himself, frankly. But then, I mean, I I just, I don't know how people can not think that we need Second Amendment rights and think that the police are so wonderful. But then here's this ruling that says if there's a guy who's opening fire on your kid, that the cop has a right to sit on the sidelines. It's just bananas. And that's our only option, the best option that we have. That's right. Whereas it turns out they've gathered statistics about when you have a mass shooting situation where the police are the first line of defense versus where an armed me- armed person on the spot is the first line of defense. The average number of, of casualties when you have to wait for the police is 14, whereas when you don't and it's just somebody on the spot, it's 2.5. So, uh, you know, there is something to what the gun people are saying. And one of my favorite lines from a libertarian about all this is, if, if there's an intruder in your home, I'll give you two choices of, of what you can have in your possession a telephone to call the police or a gun. Now, if you choose the telephone, you can call the police and, you know, in a half an hour, they'll be glad to show up and take a picture of your dead body. But Or shoot you and your dog for yeah, protecting I mean, that's yourself. that's also possible. <laughs> right, that's also possible. Well, I don't know. I think that people would say, oh, it doesn't happen that often. And I just think overall, we're all pretty brainwashed. You know, I remember when I, when I first found out about Ron Paul, even though I liked certain aspects of him, I still didn't get it because of course, universal healthcare is the answer. Of course we need the EPA. But really what I think woke me up is uh, the money masters and America freedom to fascism and seeing how the Federal Reserve is our enemy, which is just like your free ebook right now, Our yeah. Enemy, the Fed. Right. And I thought that was a cool title because that's that was really my, my clicking on point, right? That was the point where I woke up. And then all of the other facades sort of started to melt away. Is that the reason why you wrote this book? I mean, you've written so many different pieces. You're focusing a lot on ebooks. I love that they're being given away for free. It's a great way for people to get educated. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the impetus for this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Our Enemy, the Fed, is, uh, it's actually OurEnemyTheFed.com. How about that? Is It's not too long, but it makes a case against the Federal Reserve that I think it's important for people to hear. Because this, I think, separates the, I never remember the the sheep from the goats or the whatever's from the whatever, the, the good from the bad, let's say. Because I, I can't tell you how many conservatives I hear who just repeat slogans like it's 1983. You know, we need limited government, uh, strong national defense and family values over and over and over and over. And I am just so sick and tired of these platitudes. And it's true that some of those conservatives, they might be good on things like milk subsidies. But when it comes down to the real core of what makes up the American government, what makes up this regime, when you get right down to the nitty gritty, when you get down to the U.S. empire all over the world and the Federal Reserve that helps to, to fund it, they go silent or they're cheerleaders. And that's why I say the Fed is what separates the good from the bad. Because now, and I'm not saying they're irredeemably bad. Most of them don't know any better. Like, I, like when I was a kid, what did I know about the Federal Reserve? I just knew I didn't like Bill and Hillary Clinton because, you know, when I was, I guess I was in college around that time, I knew that. I hadn't yet gotten to the Fed. I would eventually. Um, and so I just repeated all the conservative talking points. But you've got to get to a point where you ask the more fundamental questions. And the Fed is, well, I mean, there are so many problems with this. I mean, you could say 
first of all, when you look at the history of the Fed, it's so funny to me that the, the political left that is so cynical about everything in the private sector, right, that every company is out to kill you, basically. But yet, when, when you look at the history of the Fed, you have the top bankers in America coming together to, to draft basically the language of the Federal Reserve Act. That's not setting off alarm bells and red flags aren't flying for you with that? <laughs> Why? Of all possible things to overlook, why would it be that? So in Our Enemy, the Fed, what I do is I answer some of the usual claims because most of the time people stay silent about the Fed. Until we had Ron Paul, nobody was talking about the Fed. I mean, Richard Nixon talking, I mean, it doesn't, was he debating George McGovern about the Fed? Ne never even remotely came up. Bill Clinton versus Bob Dole, were they arguing about the Fed? Of course not. Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. I mean, now they might have disagreed on what the correct Fed policy should be, but were they disagreeing about whether we should have a Fed? Of course not. Never. So most of the time, it's just off the table. But when you do force them to talk about it, they'll say, well, the Fed has, has smoothed out the economy and it's made things more stable. And why, if we didn't have it, we'd have these terrible banking panics we had in the 19th century. So you get all these kinds of, of arguments. So I answer those. But I also point out, what are the main problems with having the Fed? The Fed is there. The Fed is a creation of Congress that has the government-granted monopoly privilege to create legal tender money. And the troubles with this are, just give them quickly, uh, and, and I'm sure we could all add our own at home. But, but the first one would be, of course, since 1913, when the Fed was created, to today, the dollar, the U.S. dollar, has lost more than 95% of its value. Now, if that had happened with a private company being in charge of the Fed, uh, being in charge of the money, we'd never hear the end of it. And I know some people say the Fed is a private company. It's not, because I don't know of a private company that was created by act of Congress, and the chair of it is appointed by the president, and so on. I mean, the, the, the Congress could dissolve it tomorrow if it wanted to, so some, some private company it is. So first thing is it's destroy the value of our money. Now, you may say, okay, Tom, it's true, prices are higher now than they used to be. But our, our wages and salaries are higher now, too, so don't we break even? But one of the many problems with that is th the trouble is your savings don't break even. Because if you've been saving for 30 years, and if every year the inflation is at 2% or 3% or 4% or 5% or even higher as it's been in other years, your savings have been decimated by the time you retire. That's a problem. And that means that a lot of people who don't know anything about the stock market, nor should they, a lot of average people have decided, well, in order to just at least hold on to the value of my money, I better invest in stocks. And so they wind up, in effect, gambling. They wind up, in effect, putting their money in places they shouldn't be. And it, it puts them in very, very difficult positions. And then if the stocks go sour, then they're really in trouble. Whereas before the Fed, back when gold and silver coins were circulating as money, they consistently held or increased in uh, their value. So if, if you wanted, you could have the safest retirement plan of all, accumulate coins and then just you know, wait for them to appreciate in value, which is exactly what they did and exactly what we would expect them to do. So that's one thing. Another thing is it builds in the idea of moral hazard. So moral hazard is this, uh, you can think of it as like when you rent a car, you don't get an oil change for a car you rented. You, know, you figure somebody else will do that. Um, you don't you don't get a car wash for a car you rented, and some people, not me, I'm pretty good with rental cars, but since it's not your car, well, some people will you know speed right over that speed bump because what do they care? They're not going to bear the cost of 
the, the long-term damage you're doing to the car because they don't, they're not the real owners of it long-term. So this is moral hazard where they get to enjoy the benefits, but the costs are pushed off onto somebody else. Well, moral hazard occurs in the case of, let's say, the financial crisis of 2008, where you had a lot of firms that behaved irresponsibly, but some of them had the feeling that, well, the Fed will always be there to, to back us up if anything goes terribly wrong. So while things are going great, we keep all the profits. But when things turn sour, well, the Fed will help spread the losses around. So it encourages uh, artificially reckless behavior. And then finally, and we could have even more than just this, finally, as I show in the little book, the Fed creates what we call the business cycle. Because you notice how we're all doing pretty well, most people, and then a lot of people are doing badly, and then we're all doing pretty well, and then a lot, like it moves in a sine curve. And we've just become accustomed to this. We think that just must be the way economies are, and there's nothing you could do about it. And the Marxists say, well, yeah, that's just capitalism for you. It just tends to do that. But we're a little bit more curious, uh, we libertarians in the so-called Austrian school. We want to know, why does it move like that? And it turns out the central bank, the Federal Reserve, has a lot to do with that. Because to make a long story short, the Fed, you're always hearing in the news, the Fed is playing with interest rates. And the Fed affects interest rates in the economy. And a lot of times the Fed wants to push them nice and low. The problem is the low interest rates send the wrong signal to entrepreneurs. They give the impression that the economy is ready to complete a lot more projects than it really is. And so during these boom periods where everything seems to be going well, entrepreneurs are embarking on all these new projects and employing people, but they've been misled about the economy's capacity. And it turns out a lot of these projects aren't going to be able to be completed. And then we have the recession where we're trying to shuffle things around and get things back to where they ought to be. But the Fed is sending white noise when entrepreneurs are trying to calculate what's a profitable investment. The Fed is sending white noise and confusing the situation, which leads to a lot of the problems we have. So that's this kind of stuff that you don't hear on television, but that people really, really need to know. And so I figured the best price for a book, if you want people to read it, is zero. I suppose the best price would be negative 10 if I paid everybody $10 to read it. But that ain't happening. Free is as best as I'm doing. So it's over at OurEnemyTheFed.com. Well, that was a really good, quick overview of that. Um, I have one more question. I know you have to go, but how do people, are right, you hear Trump talking uh, smack on the Fed now, which is pretty exciting, but how would we end the Fed now? Like, what would that even look like? Is that a possibility? Wouldn't that crash the economy? Well, it's funny. When the first bank of the United States um, was ended. This was this was created under the um, with the support of Alexander Hamilton back in the 1790s, and it had a 20 year charter, so it was set to expire, I think, in 1811. And every it's so funny. Everybody at the time said that um, it was going to crash the economy. They said exactly that, and everything was fine. <laughs> and it turns out the thing that did crash the economy was the second bank of the United States that they started years later, five years later. That thing went on some crazy inflationary boom that eventually crashed. So it wasn't the ending of the first bank. It was the creation of the second one. Now, I mean, really what, would, what we would I – mean, there are a lot of different pathways to how you go from the money we have now to a sound money, you know, where the government can't just create the money out of thin air. Um, you could you, – in fact, I even have a, 
I had a blog post where I listed all Henry Hazlitt and Murray Rothbard and George Reisman and Hans Senholtz. They all had different plans for how they would go about it. Um, so you could just take the amount of money that you have and compare it to the gold stock and divide one into the other and just go back to a gold standard like that. Uh, you know, that's one possibility. Um, another possibility would be to just go step by step and just amend the Federal Reserve Act to say uh, to freeze all Federal Reserve purchases because that's how the Fed increases the money supply. It buys things. It generally buys um, securities. So you just say the Fed can't buy anything else because the idea is the Fed writes a check on itself. It creates the check out of thin air. It hands it to some institution. And now that institution, bing, has more money in its account. That's how it creates the money. So if you say the Fed can't buy anything anymore, no more Fed purchases, that's step one. And so you can, you can take this step by step. But I think people are under the impression that if we have fewer dollar bills in the economy, that this is a bad thing and that this will cause problems or that if prices fall, because uh, without the Fed inflating the money supply, prices would be falling, that this is a bad thing. But as I, I actually talk about this in the book too, this is not a bad thing. Prices fell through all of American history, all the way up through the early 20th century. And the United States became the industrial power of the world while that was happening. We, in, in the computer sector, we see prices falling all the time and that's no problem. Because, because these companies anticipate the fall in prices and everything's fine. Uh, there's, in fact, what, what, what capitalism is trying to do is really to create abundance for us to the point where the price of things moves towards zero. And that's really all deflation is. It's, it's, not, it's nothing to be scared of. The American Economic Review did a study about 10, 15 years ago. They found no correlation between falling prices and economic depression. Period, uh, periods of bad economic times. No correlation whatsoever. Because as I say, throughout the whole 19th century in peacetime, we had falling prices, no Federal Reserve, and it worked out fine. We did have some banking panics, but that wasn't because we didn't have a Federal Reserve. Canada didn't have a, a Federal Reserve or a Bank of Canada until the 1930s, and they had zero banking panics. They didn't even have the ones the United States had. The reason we had banking troubles in the U.S. was mainly that there was a regulation in place that said no bank can open more than one office. Well, what do you think that means? If, if that local community has a real economic downturn, it, it wipes out that bank because it, it's not diversified. But if you say the bank can have a branch over here, over here, over here, then it can, it can, it can uh, weather the blow if there's a local downturn. So Canada didn't have this regulation. So Canada had less regulation and therefore more stability in its banking system. We had this, this uh, the idea of this regulation was, it was like, it was like for, it was thought that if we have branches that the bank will be too big and we need to have like your little town community bank. Okay, that's cute and sweet and everything if you want that bank to collapse every five seconds. But if you don't want that, then, then you should remove this requirement. So the, the, the quick answer the, the, uh, is that number one, we've been misled about what caused instability in our economy in the past. If, if we think it's because we didn't have enough regulation or we didn't have enough central banking, then the counterexample is Canada. They didn't have, they had much less regulation and they had no central bank and their economy was fine. So there are numerous ways to transition us out, but given that the longer the Fed exists, the more distortions it inserts into the economy, the sooner we stop inserting distortions, the better. And as Thomas Sowell says, when people say, well, what would you replace the Fed with? 
He says, if somebody has cancer and they take out the cancer, you don't ask, well, what are you going to replace that with? Right. It's the, you're, you're asking the wrong question. Sounds like it. I wish everybody else was this logical. I like it a lot, Tom. This has been really cool. You're always a, a breath of fresh air and logic and I don't know, sanity in an insane world. I wish that more musicians would listen to you. Well, I, <laughs> I we're, the, we're the messengers. I feel like the lone musician that's like, but what about economics, guys? <laughs> um, so I appreciate uh, your time to, to educate us about this and also for putting together your wide body of work that everybody can check out at tomwoods.com, right? Yes, yes, that's right. Awesome. Well, thanks, Tatiana. I always appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Tom. And also, if people want to go to Contra Krugman Cruise, it's go to Contra Krugman. Uh, oh, no, what is it? TomWoodsCruise.com? Uh, either one. ContraCruise.com also works. Excellent. Well, thanks very much. Everybody, pick up your free copy of OurEnemyTheFed.com. That's where you get it. And um, thanks again, Tom, for joining us today. Thanks a lot. All right, folks. Now, remember, that appeal is also being made to you, namely to go to OurEnemyTheFed.com and pick up that ebook. It's pretty darn good. It won't take you long to read. And it's got arguments your friends can't answer. Your friends probably can't say anything about the Fed. But if you have a wise guy, smart alecky friend, this thing is just going to be like a steamroller. At least, you know, get your friend thinking in new and helpful ways. Let's put it that way. So if you haven't done it yet, please do me that favor. Actually, you're doing yourself a favor. You're going to love it. And plus, now you'll have reading material you don't have to pay for. So OurEnemyTheFed.com. See you on Monday. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.